Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. So everyone, we were sitting for an hour, but we made it to the full one hour practice. Um, congratulations. It's a hard work. I think some of you had a little bit of a hard time with the long sit. Um, so we spent uh, 50 minutes practicing Anapanasati and 10 minutes of Metta at the end. And so this is kind of the, you know, intensity of the practice that we seek to extend those deeper states of the meditative mind. And um, if we remember the five minute mark is the minimum amount of time, which I ask everyone to sit every day. And if we do that, that in and of itself is enough continuity to open a door so that when you join the longer sit, there's some established pattern. In order for sitting to become sadhana, you have to do it every day. This can't be a two-day-a-week practice. It has to be an everyday practice. But five minutes a day is not so bad. However, we remember that at 20 minutes is when the mind starts to make um, a more measurable shift to a slightly deeper state. 40 minutes is kind of that benchmark of reaching the true depth level of the mind. And that time that we spend beyond the 40-minute mark is when we're operating on the mind. And then after any operation, we need to put some stitches. So then you can think of metta like stitches. Oh, I've suffered, but now they give me something at the end. You know. So I would imagine that perhaps the most difficult time during the sit was uh, the time between 40 minutes and 50 minutes. Is that true for everyone? Yeah, it starts to be like, when's this going to end? I just, how much longer are we going to sit here? It's clearly been a whole day. It's a whole day. It's crazy. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to wake up here tomorrow, and it's going to, you know, it's just, it feels eternal. Every breath is like a torture. You know, we're like, how many more breaths? Let me revert to various kind of techniques. Like, I'll just start counting my breaths. Here I go. And then you reach like five and you're like, then you lose your count. You're like, yeah, start again. You know, and then you would lose. We say, okay, I'm not going to count. I seem to be losing my count. I'm just going to say in as I breathe in and out as I breathe out. Just focus the mind. 
squeeze Mulabunda just to try to hold on here. I'm going to tense something just to try to be here. And it doesn't work. We say in, and then we give up immediately. You know, something in the mind just breaks. And we think that those are moments of failure. Those are the moments when we're operating on the mind. You see, inside the mind we have, which you have learned throughout this course, uh, about the, um, the patterns of the mind. What are these patterns called? Hmm? In Sanskrit, what are the patterns called? What is, what is Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras? Vritti is a one-time experience when the vritti accumulates and becomes what? Good, the samskara. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The samskaras. So when we have samskaras, they're in different states. Mm-hmm. Right before the class, all of you, many of you, not all of you, many of you, are outside laughing, joking, feeling so wonderful. Oh, wonderful. So much camaraderie, so much friendship, so much joy. Then within some minutes, it's all gone. You come in here, you sit, misery, misery, misery. But that misery was within you out there as well, but was not evident. So we gloss over what we call the sleeping samskaras because we entertain ourselves. So we talk here. I have some people, they cannot stand not to be engaged in some activity because what happens? The moment the mind shuts off, the moment we're not talking to someone, buying something, doing something, engaged in some activity, then those sleeping samskaras, which maybe are not so sleeping in that individual who cannot stand a moment of silence, then those samskaras, which may be active that that person is trying to avoid, become unavoidable. Now for you, you are not that person because you have tolerated sitting silently quite well for some period of time. And then only when we reach the depth layer of the mind, then it became intolerable. Then you had the same experience of that person who has activated samskaras, cannot stand those samskaras. And anything they'll do, they will avoid being with themselves because the active samskaras are creating so much misery, so it's overwhelming. And this is the birth of addiction. You know, we become addicted to anything that gets us away from the misery of our current state. And this is what we do. You know, we can have... You know, and in some ways, we could consider the spiritual path a replacement addiction for a period of time. That's okay, you know. Uh, when we have those 10 minutes at the end when we were doing fine, doing fine, doing fine, steadily applying the technique, and then for 10 minutes at the end, we're going bananas, right? So the 10 minutes of bananas at the end is when what is called the sleeping samskara has arisen. That misery, that pattern of suffering which exists within us, but which we're not aware of when we engage in our moment-to-moment life. But that sleeping pattern of misery, the sleeping samskara, has yet the opportunity, because it is not exterminated, it's merely sleeping, it's what's called an adornment state. It has the opportunity, when given the fertile ground of what is called attachment and aversion, to do what? To sprout, show its face again, start growing, growing, growing. And that's what it did during those 10 minutes. If you had even one moment during any kind of uh, deep arising of of an intense pattern of aversion, one moment, even one moment, it said, where you were able to observe that and return to the breath, even one decision within that period of time where you turned away from that old samskara, which was now uh, activated, and drew the attention to the breath, that that's progress along the path. 
that's important to recognize. I say even, you know, in the, this uh, sacred text from the Pali canon called the Dhammapada, it says that one moment spent in the state of sati is better than a lifetime, a lifetime spent in ignorance. So if we have only one, we have many more than one moment, you know, but if we have one moment in the state of an active samskara, an active pattern of suffering, well, this is progress. Understand? So it's important to realize that when these kind of deep, intense states arise, that this is not evidence that we're off the path, that in fact, this is where we're doing the most deep work on the path itself. Understand? So we must be courageous to be willing to go there to these dark places, these shadow sides of ourselves. And it is not to eradicate those shadow sides of ourselves, but to observe, oh, look, here I am back to the breath, remaining neutral. If we observe and we generate more aversion, more negativity towards whatever state arises within ourselves, then we can create a double resistance. And this is considered to be a double negative. We are already experiencing something negative. Now when we resist that negativity, that resistance multiplies the negativity And we begin to be locked into a pattern which actually gives energy and sustenance toward that particular samskara. But in the state of observation, we just observe. And like a storm passing through the sky, sooner or later that storm will pass. You don't know how long it stays. But unlike the weather, the more we lock into resistance, the more it stays. We give it fuel. You know, Like any storm needs fuel. If you remove the fuel from the storm, the storm dies. Understand? This is why... These vast um, cyclones and hurricanes form out in the Atlantic Basin and the Pacific Basin because there's no, um, there, there's an abundance of fuel and nothing to take the fuel away. But the moment the storms hit the landmass, then there's no more fuel eventually, uh, and the storm dissipates. The further inland you go, the less uh, hurricanes there are. It's just a mere fact of nature. And, and in reality on the planet. And in the same way, when we stop fueling those cycles of negativity, then they stop. But if we give them fuel, what happens? The storm gets bigger, more fuel, bigger storm, more spinning. Vritis become samskaras, which aggregate and form even larger patterns, which now we call, in our contemporary English language, uh, personality. Well, that's just who I am. That's your character, right? When we think of it as something set in stone, when in fact it's just the fuel for whatever storms we've been, you know, allowing to kind of take over the field of the mind for however many years we've been on the planet. Hmm? Think about how many years you existed before you found the path. And at the very least, that's kind of what we're up against in terms of inertia. Does that make sense? I want to talk about one other thing before we have some time for any questions. Um, The other thing that I'd like to talk about is that the practice and equanimity may seem dull at some moment. Oh, I need to observe breath as breath. You know, it can be dull, boring. And sometimes there's a desire for entertainment. You know, oh, if I could just see a light or something, it could be more interesting. You know, if I could just, uh, you know, see the chakras or something, this could be so much more nice than just sitting here feeling the breath. So boring, this breath goes in and it goes out. It goes in again, it goes out, 
It's extremely boring. And we look for something extraordinary. And then we have an attachment that we generate towards a particular state, which again locks us into the cycle of suffering. So it's extremely important that we understand that while, while it may seem boring, ordinary, pointless even at times, that actually when we train in equanimity, you might not be aware of it, but you're actually training the mind to change its dwelling place. So where does the mind dwell? Subconsciously, unconsciously. This is a very important question. Where does the mind dwell? What is the dwelling place of your mind? The mind is like a home. What are the qualities of that home? How is it decorated? You know, what types of visitors do come into the mind? And how do you treat those visitors when they enter into that abode? You know, what is the dwelling place of the mind? And this is very important to realize, again, not as a negative thing, not as a, you know, self-directed moment of, of negativity. Oh, look, my house is a mess, you know? So we have a solution to that, to clean the house. It's not the end of the world. House is good. We just need to clean it. There's stuff everywhere. No problem, right? The furniture is outdated. We need to get rid of the furniture. What's the furniture? Our thoughts, you know? What is the dwelling place of the mind is what is the habit pattern of the mind? And we are not a victim to the habit pattern of the mind. We are the creator of the habit pattern of the mind. Even more than that, we are the builder of the house itself, right? We're everything. We're the builder, the architect, the interior designer, and the occupant of that house. So it's up to us. The house is not functioning well. House is broken here or there. We're the architect. We're the builder. We can make some repairs. House is ugly inside, filled with outdated furniture left over from 1932. We can remove that furniture, right? We, the house is not comfortable, you know, uh, it's uncomfortable. It's a sparse house with no thoughts, you know, too, too little, too, too, or too severe thoughts, something like this. We can choose. Okay, let me invite some other things in here. So in, again, in the, this traditional, in the traditional Pali Canon and the Dhammapada, the teaching of the Buddha says that our goal is to make happiness our dwelling place. To make happiness our dwelling place. So that the mind dwells in happiness. And that if left alone, the patterning of the mind is so strong that we will dwell in this state of santosha, contentment, maitri, friendliness. And if we think about this, we have, we have a lot of work to do, you know, to perhaps change the structure, perhaps make some upgrades to the technology of the house, to change some things in the interior design of the house. So our dwelling place will be happiness. And when we dwell in happiness, we have impacted the change, which we do not get when we think that we can only be happy with this or that or this or that or this or that. But the idea is to change the habit pattern of the mind so deeply so that we can understand what friendliness really is. And understand what it means to, you know, break free of the cycle of suffering. If we have not heard the simplicity of the, of the four noble truths, then I'd like to share those with you in very plain English, which is there is suffering, you know, or is often translated as suffering exists or suffering is, right? So we know this as um, dukkha, right? So you could say suffering indeed exists, 
which we have in you know the yoga sutras is dukkham eva sarvam right so dukkha exists right? which for first sounds like bad news you know some people say oh, i didn't like the teaching of the buddha it was so depressing it's all this suffering 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 i've got enough suffering already why do i need to go into a teaching that talks only of suffering you know, I want to talk of happiness. Where's the discussion of happiness? When the Buddha says, if you cannot face your suffering, you cannot uh, experience happiness then either. So if we have suffering exists, everything in fact leads to suffering. Mm. So then the second noble truth is important, which is there's a reason for that. There's a cause for the suffering. Mm. And, the, and then the third noble truth, this is the cause. Right? What is the cause? This is the cause. This is it. Uh, and, and, and there's a solution, right? There's a cause, there's a solution. Suffering is, there's a cause, there's a solution. Mm -hmm. So there's a way out of suffering. Good news. So now we have, we have to wait till noble truth number three to get the good news. Right? Noble truth number four, this is the way. This is the way out. Here's the teaching. So it's essentially um, uh, almost like a, a, a logical proof. There's a cause for suffering. Suffering exists. There's a cause for suffering. There's a way out. This is the way. Sort of like original um, publicity manual, you know? So we presented the problem and identified the source of the problem, the solution to the problem, and then the Buddha is offering it to you. You know? Would you like it, essentially? And, uh, and that's an important thing to understand is that uh, the wisdom of both the teaching of the Buddha the wisdom of the teaching of yoga, what you could call the, the spiritual wisdom of the East, is rooted entirely in the paradigm of practice based on empirical results. And this is extremely important to understand. You know, here's the problem. There's a reason for the problem. There's a solution to the problem. Here's the solution. And everything is judged on the efficacy of the path. You know, does it work? Hmm. And you have to be the judge of that. But how long will you give it? You know, we usually say to practice for about three months, you should start to get some feeling that is kind of okay. After 10 years, you can start to see some serious results. Then we can be considered, okay, this starts to be established in some level. But the real place to evaluate, of course, is to practice for the whole life. Um, Assuming that we don't know how long we will live for, but to practice for the whole life, and then to look back at some moment retrospectively and say, look, look where I started. I made some progress. And this technique is working. Mm -hmm. With also the idea that if the technique stops working, we need to make a shift. Any technique that uh, it works should also contain eternal truths. So the same truth that was evident, you know, 2,000, 5,000 years ago should be evident and apparent today. And if the truth fails, then it cannot be an eternal truth. There are temporary truths that are good for a moment and eternal truths which are good for eternity. And any teaching of spiritual liberation is rooted in eternal truths while relying on temporary truths, you know, because those temporary things may change. We have to exist within the temporal nature of reality while we're here. So this is uh, most of what I wanted to talk about. There might be a few other things that could be useful to clarify. I had spoken a little bit about during the sitting about cultivating what is called in, um, in the teaching of the Buddha as the four immeasurables, 
Do you remember that? Hmm? We're just suffering too much not to be able to hear that. So I talked a little bit about what's called the four immeasurables or the Brahma Viharas. And these are, um, uh, I'll tell them to you. And then I'd like to see if anybody could remember if these are mentioned anywhere um, in the Yoga Sutras. All right. So we have friendliness. We have compassion. We have joy. Um, and we have equanimity. Right? So there's four qualities called the four immeasurables. Does anybody remember those from the sutras? Remember? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Good. The Yoga Sutra number 133 also talks about that. Maitri, Karuna, Mudito, Pekshanam. Patanjali gives a little specific direction and says, you know, this quality towards this person, this quality towards this state, this quality towards this state, this quality towards this state. And the Buddha has a slightly different take, but presents the similar four states. And the Buddha says these are four immeasurable qualities, meaning immeasurable joy, immeasurable friendliness, immeasurable kindness, immeasurable equanimity. Not only towards this person, that person, this person, that person, but immeasurable all beings. And the reason or in the way that the Buddha presents this is that that quality of mind, which is not that quality of being, you should say rather, I should say rather than mind, that quality of being, um, which is not rooted in the temporal, is eternal. So to tap into that, to reach what is beyond mind and matter, you know, material world, we must seek to cultivate or tap into something which is beyond. So if we only need a certain amount of equanimity, then that cannot be from the eternal nature of being or beingness. Mm -hmm. It cannot be a flow from the state of what is or the isness of the moment. But in the immeasurability of these four qualities, we can cultivate kind of a root of identification beyond the temporary arising of the moment. It's kind of hard to understand, right? But, um, but these, these four qualities are very important to reflect on as an individual, to think about as an individual, and to, and to figure out how do I integrate these four immeasurables or these four you know, pillars of citta prasadhanam, as Patanjali says, on the path. Do I um, integrate them as Patanjali directed? Or do I want to, am I more ambitious? When you start with Patanjali and try to go more ambitious, sometimes too ambitious, you fail too much. Maybe a little more humble is good. Can see how it goes, you know? Good. Okay, so now we have a little time for questions. I did think I saw maybe one question. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see what's in the chat first. Yes, okay. So um, the feet fall asleep. Would everybody whose feet fell asleep raise your hand? Good, nice. Did anybody's feet not fall asleep? Right. And why not? Did you move? <laughs> I, I did pretty well in the beginning. Um, I, I'd like to think that if it wasn't for me, I'd be able to hold a lot longer, but I genuinely thought I was going to be able to do it the whole round. Yeah. I knew for a fact that I was like, oh, I've got this. And then that 10 minute, that last 10 minutes, mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I got to stick this leg out. But I, I sat different. So mm -hmm. I just, I sat instead of like a full crisscross bind, I sat and then I, I put this between so that there was some space. Yeah, absolutely. I, I might imagine that, you know, towards the end. And, and if you, if you change a position, 
the feet won't fall asleep. But it, and also, if you practice regularly, so if you have a consistent sitting practice, then you're going to reach an endurance point about the feet falling asleep. So, and the reason why I wanted to share that was actually not to bring attention to those individuals whose feet didn't fall asleep. I thought everybody would raise their hands um, because most of the time what happens in the long sit, unless we change the position, everybody's feet fall asleep. And that's actually good. That shows that, you know, you reached the point where you were working and you reached the point where um, you reached kind of like, wow, this is some intensity. The body is, you know, you're holding that for a little bit. My feet fall asleep too. Not so much now because I have to go beyond what is my daily sitting practice. I sit for an hour um, daily, uh, sometimes twice a day. Um, and if I sit for more than an hour, right about like hour and five minutes, my feet start to go bonkers too. So it's whatever endurance you have. And I just wanted to bring like everyone's attention to that because you don't feel bad if your feet fell asleep. You know, it's great. It's fine. Part of the process. It's like, did you stretch your hamstrings when you did yoga? Great. Did anybody not stretch the hamstrings when you did yoga? If you, if you raise the hand, I'm going to feel like, did you practice? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe you did backbending today and skip the forward bend or something, you know? But the, and the, however, if it's overwhelming, you know? So if like you have a knee issue, so I'm really happy you change the position. You know, start with an injury. Like if you're pregnant, for example, or um, we're recovering from an illness and the body is just like, just, you know, exhausted. Whenever some pains start to be overwhelming, give the body rests, lean against the wall, lie down for a moment, come back up. And as I've said many times, try to spend five times that you change the posture. If you lie down, don't lie down for the whole duration. Most of the time, snoring starts to come. So you lie down for like two minutes and then come back up. If you need to do it again, like two minutes, come back up. If you really, really need to lie down because say maybe you are in the throes of some infection or something like this, you can't sit, my advice would be to turn on the lights quite brightly so that you will not sleep and you can actually do the practice while lying down. Mm -hmm. So that's totally normal. Um, So if you lie down, you came back, so it's okay. It's not a problem. Um, just try to build up the endurance towards the sitting. All right. And I think there was one other question that came up. For those of us starting off at the beginning, should we try to follow what we did today? Um, if we're starting off in meditation, five minutes a day, applying the technique of anapanasati is very useful. Um, what I'd recommend is do a little bit of guided meditations. So take like a five-minute guided meditation that you like or a series and just kind of put those on. So get used to it. And then if you do guided meditation like for a month and it's all anapanasati over and over again, you're going to get the support. Then after a month, do six days of the same recording that you put over and over again or you can rotate recordings. One day, no recording. That way you feel like, what do I do? You know, when I have no recording, what do I do? Then what you can do is keep your five minutes maybe on one day, and then you can find a 10-minute recording. And you can do like 10 minutes after a couple months. And then you can use like a little support from a recording to expand the length. And then you can choose, okay, I'm going to do like guided uh, three days a week, and I'm going to do four days on my own, four days on my own, I'm just going to, you know, put this there. I, I sometimes sit with the Vipassana online community, 
And it's really wonderful um, when I do. And then I sit also by myself. So I do both. And it's very, very beneficial to have a check-in with a community, a video or something like that it can be very useful. But I do not recommend anybody to start off trying to sit for one hour. This is like, you know, on your own. You don't have an established meditation practice. It's like saying, should I start off doing full primary series and supta kramasana and drop backs? I've never done yoga before. We're like, no, don't do that. Maybe do like cat and cow and downward dog for a little bit. And then, you know, we'll think about sun salutations next week. You know what I mean? So you're going to build up like with anything else. Make sense? Good. Any questions here? Sure. I'm afraid that my question is going to be too long. It's okay. Go ahead. So I totally can relate with what you say about some scars. I think I had the experience before. Like through the meditation, uh, I will feel, I never decided about chakra, but I will feel the chakra. And the chakra will tell me over time, like I will feel the pain around this area, a little physical pain. And then I will inquire, like, why do I feel the pain? And then later on, maybe like a year of practicing, I will notice that it is some, some scar that's not being letting me leave freely. And as soon as I start working with it, the pain will it start to be less present in the body. And now I can feel through the practice, like especially the second practice with you, I can feel really tangible sensation in a different area, also like in the chakra area, even I don't know anything about chakra. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, okay, maybe it's some samsara again over there. And uh, how long you've been practicing to face that kind of things and do they disappear? Is it like, and you definitely see the benefit of it. Like, I saw the thing, I started working on it, my life changed. Hmm. And does it, like, is it the goal of the practice? Will it go away? And is it possible to work with samsaras? And then, like, what is it feeling after you work? It's just, I don't know. It yeah. So there's a lot there. Um, and just kind of repeat the question for everyone who's tuning in. Um, we have a question about uh, the, ex the intersection between uh, physical pain, the chakras, and the samskaras, and how those all kind of intersect and work with, and if they, uh, you know, how it works like that. First of all, um, Oh, we should take a look at what the Buddha said in regards to the relationship between mind and body. So the Buddha said, um, Vedana samo sadhana sabbe dhamma, which means that Vedana, body sensations, what we experience in the body, is intimately connected to what we think in the mind, but these, in fact, are not separated. So that by working with one, we work with another. By working with one, we work with another. And that the subconscious layer of the mind is constantly feeling, constantly feeling, constantly feeling. Mind is not only in the brain. Body is not only uh, the atoms and molecules, the body. The body is also the body of energy, the different layers of the koshas that exists. Right? However, if people get attached to seeing a particular level of energy or looking for something like this, it is considered to be a distraction along the path. Because there's many people, sure, if an insight comes, you're gifted with an insight. These are called part of the siddhis that appear when we're on the path. You're gifted with an insight. You had an insight. Wonderful. It may happen again. It may not happen again. If we become attached to it and we think, my meditation is working when I see the chakras, then we are far off the path. Right? So we get a warning bell. So... 
you know? That's interesting. What is that? Huh? Amber alert. Someone has an amber alert. Thank you. I was like, it's, it's fine. We don't need to. It's probably my husband's phone likes to do that. Only his phone. I don't know why. Get an amber alert. It's actually good because if you start to do your meditation practice and you start to think, I want to see the chakras. I want to see the chakras. Try to let an amber alert go off and, and, and think like, I'm off the path. This is not the purpose. If I see them, great. If I do not see them, also great. So um, uh, Goenkaji, who was uh, uh, probably one of the uh, biggest proponents of the Vipassana teaching uh, from uh, Burma, even though he was Indian, um, uh, he has this wonderful thing where he says, he describes uh, some people, they're going along the path. And for whatever reason, they look around, oh, look over here, look over there, like a journey. And they notice all these things. And so they're this thing, oh, I look here. And so they see the chakras and they look over there. Oh, I see this, this energy body, that energy body, this spiritual being, this spiritual being. They take a moment. They talk to this disembodied being. They go over there. They have these meetings with this one, that one. And they're going along the path. The next person comes, the next seeker comes, and they are so interested in getting the final liberation that they don't have time. They don't care of chakras. They don't care of talking to this disembodied being or that being over there and this layer of awareness. So they just go directly on the path, which is better. We don't know, you know, but it should be said that it's that if we focus on, oh, I have this experience of some energy that's there. And then if we get attached to that and think that that's going to be what the practice is, especially with the teaching of the Buddha, that that's not what the practice is. You do a chakra meditation, and there are meditations that can help your mind experience the energy body. That's totally fine. But particularly, we have to be very clear that when we're training in Anapanasati, we don't get attached to anything. And the moment we get attached to something, the moment we are reifying our samskaras rather than removing our samskaras. Understand? That's the first thing. The second thing, absolutely, these things exist, you know? Um, and the chakra systems are, or places in the body are intersections. And what do we know about intersections from driving? What do you know about intersections? It's a high likelihood of collision. You know, actually, there's a there's a there's a intersection somewhere in the state of Florida, I think, in the I four corridor that is like the, um, the the intersection with the most pedestrian casualties in the United States of America. So beware. Okay, And so if you have some chakra that's modeling itself off of this intersection in the I-4 corridor, then, you know, there's going to be a lot of stuck energy there. Uh, even, if you're, even if you're just like uh, driving north here in Miami to an area on I-95 called the Golden Glades Interchange. Anyone tried that? I don't really recommend it. But the Golden Glades Interchange is probably one of the biggest exchanges, intersections, in south, on the South Florida highways. And no matter what time of day you go, maybe, 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 maybe here or there, but almost no matter what time of day you go, just for the little section of the Golden Glades interchange, because there's a different highway that goes over here, a highway that goes over there, all these other streets that need to enter the highway right at that point, there's always traffic. So we think about intersections as traffic as well. Stuff is coming in and out and in and out and in and out. Maybe there's a collision. Maybe uh, things get stuck. There's a traffic jam. Maybe somebody decides to drive in the wrong direction. You know, it's Florida. That happens. You know, anything goes. Uh, suddenly there's something that's there. So things can absolutely get stuck there. So it's very, very common that we're storing things, old things, in these subtle energy centers in the body. 
And the energy centers are responsible for different muscular activations, different nerve activations, different organ activations, different places in the spine. So definitely there are um, places of pain that can appear when there's stuckness in the body of energy. Where does that stuckness come from? Thought forms. So we can again see it's not like some being came and like invaded your chakra and made it stuck. It's stuck because of what we think, you know, and our behavior. And then that manifests eventually as some Vedana, some body sensations. So again, Vedana, Samosarana, Sabve Dhamma, what's in the mind, how we think about what we think, what we feel, or how we act, manifests in the body as some sensation here or there. To see that relationship with or without the intersection of the energy body is enough, you know? And this is, this is, we can find some liberation and the pure observation of that. So, so continue to work in that way, but don't get attached. Don't expect next to see, oh, next year, maybe I'm going to work on the third chakra. Maybe never, maybe never again you work on a chakra, you know, maybe never again you see that, but you just see, you know, now I'm working on my equanimity towards anger. Where's that? What's that about? It's everywhere, you know, <laughs> or, or something else, you know, we work on non-attachment to things we like, you know, or we work on just equanimity itself or, 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 or diligence, persistence, something else as well, you know, make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other questions here? Any points of unclarity or anything like that that you'd like to clarify about the technique? The te- technique is so clear, uh, but I'm so amazed how much thoughts I have all the time. Mm-hmm. And in one point of this meditation this morning, uh, I had the question, like, am I going crazy or will I be crazy in the of this? Like, is it ever going to end? <laughs> and the second question is, like, sometimes after, like, I try to practice um, for five years now, like, sitting and yeah. doing something. Uh, and sometimes I get lost in my own mind in a daily setting. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, does it like relate in anyhow? Like sometimes someone's saying something, but I got so mm-hmm. used to watching my mind mm-hmm. that uh, I feel detached from conversations mm-hmm. because sometimes my attention comes to my own mind mm-hmm. so often. Hmm. Right. So that's a that's a wonderful observation. So let's start off with the first. Do I have so many thoughts so that I'm crazy? Let's just start there. Everybody, we have too many thoughts. So does anybody know the statistic from contemporary neuroscience? What's the average amount of thoughts that a human being in our contemporary age thinks each day? They think. In terms of synapses? Thoughts. Thoughts. Measurable thoughts. What do you think? I think someone wager a guess. Wait. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> what else? What do we think? Mm-hmm. Measurable thoughts. So we're talking about the conscious mind. These are thoughts that we're aware of. Huh? Which, what do we know about the conscious mind? What percentage of thinking is the conscious mind? You know? What do you think? Hmm? Do you think it's the most? No. Do you think it's 50-50? No. Do you think it's 70-30? 85-15? Hmm? 
usually say it's 95% subconscious, 5% conscious. Within the 5% of our conscious mind, it's measurable. So we have to have measurable thoughts. Like people report like thought, 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 thought. It's around 100,000 thoughts that a person consciously thinks per day. And I think if we include maybe the subconscious mind, somebody can do the math of proportionality. You know, 5% is 100,000. Then you got to multiply that to figure out what the rest of the 95% of your unconscious, subconscious mind is doing throughout the day. Maybe we're closer to the billion situation. You know, maybe you're right. <laughs> you put them together. So we all have too many thoughts, is what I'm saying. And uh, we have too many thoughts. And if, in fact... There's a particular thing that happens, one thought after another, one thought after another, one thought after another, which is called proliferation, or in the Pali language, prapancha, when things proliferate. And then we have this feeling of insanity, because we have one thought, another thought, another thought, another thought, another thought, another, maybe some of you have experienced this, where the first thought is maybe not so bad. Let me try to come up with a silly example, you know? (gasps) I have a gray hair. Right? So it's one thought. It's not so bad. It's a gray hair. What's it doing there? It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's, you know, this is what happens. The hair is gray. My dad went gray overnight. Could be true. Something happens to some people, you know. Tomorrow, I will probably be gray. Right? So we see how it's proliferating. And then what comes next is everyone at my work will think I'm too old. I will be fired. I will no longer have a job. I cannot work in my profession. I will lose my house. I will be homeless. From one gray hair to now I'm jobless and homeless, wandering the streets, you know, it's insanity, right? But the mind, if left unchecked, one thought to another, one thought to another, the mind thinks from from A to B, you can do, from B to C, you can be like, but if you see A to the end, it's insanity. You have one gray hair. You're clearly not going to be homeless. It's a gray hair. You don't like it? Pluck it out. You know what I mean? Dye it another color. You know, it could be pink. It could be cool. Suddenly, you know? So we should leave it. Make peace with the thing. It's just one hair. Leave it alone. Um, so you can see the insanity of that. So we all have that proclivity to the extent that it was identified in the teachings thousands of years ago. So we all have too many thoughts, number one. Don't worry about that. And the layers, right? Like one, one, like it says, I'm going to go gray. Mm-hmm. And then there's a part that's worrying about it. Correct. And you see the and worrier, it, mm-hmm. like worrying mm-hmm. part. And mm-hmm. then some part is, you know, you're making that up. Mm-hmm. So it's one part yeah. that's making fun. Mm-hmm. And then another layer that you need to be focusing on the breath, but you're mm-hmm. uh, thinking mm-hmm. all that. So layers of like... Mm-hmm. Ten thoughts over one thought is also there. Which is very much interesting in regards to what you, what the second part of your question is, which was, I am speaking to someone, but I'm constantly in my own thoughts um, because you've been training to be aware of your thoughts. Number one, that's good to be aware of how you're reacting to the situation. But the key piece that's missing in both of this, uh, in both sections of your question is the body. So remember that this too, this sati practice is also an embodiment practice. So we come back to the tactile feeling of the breath. We come back to the sensation, the kinesthetic embodied reality of the moment. And this helps the mind lose its inertia and lose those multiple different layers. Similarly, 
when we're engaging in conversation with someone else, it's very useful to not only be aware of what's happening in our mind, but to remain embodied so that we're aware of our breath. We're aware of how our body is responding because the subconscious mind is reacting, reacting, reacting. And if we're only aware of our thoughts, we're, we're like 10 steps behind how we're already reacting. We may or may not register consciously what is our subconscious reaction, but if we can keep a root in breath and body, always breath and body, breath and body, then that will give the mind a ground, what we call a firm ground to kind of rest on. So if you feel that prapancha, you feel that proliferation, whether you're in meditation, whether you're in conversation with someone else, you always come back to the tactile sense. And for you specifically, if you need to, um, you can integrate a little bit of what's called kaya sati, which is that you can be, so sati, the mindfulness practice, kaya, the body, you could even go a little bit more into the body. This is kind of like the bridge between what we would call anapanasati and vipassana, where we begin to practice kaya sati. So you could even, for a moment when you feel that prapancha, feel the contact points that your body makes with the ground. You're in the conversation, soles of the feet. So you just keep some point of body awareness, which helps the mind stay present in the moment and helps divert a little bit of energy from the proliferation into um, sort of the present moment. Make sense? Yeah. And, and, and maybe you could, if you've been sitting for five years and you're working with this and you're interested in it, and it sounds like you are, maybe you could consider signing up for a meditation retreat and, and maybe, maybe take the Vipassana retreat and do the 10 days. Yeah, do the ten. <laughs> yeah, it's a very common question. It's like, so, so does it have to be ten days? Can I just do like a one day sample? <laughs> See if I like it, and then if I like it, I'll stay. If I don't like it, then I can escape. It's better for me. Can I watch a video about it? Maybe it's and then just try it out at home. It's a ten days because what they say is. So I talked a little bit today about how in the 10 minutes from the like 40 minutes to 50 minutes, we're doing some operation. So there we're, we're performing, you do like three and a half days of Anapanasati, days. Wake up in the morning, Anapanasati. And then you start, and you start getting the direction, never stop meditating. So then like, okay, I'm eating. I feel my breath, I'm eating. There's the breath, I'm eating. You're like, please can I just take a break from this? And they start telling you, no break, meditate all day. This is awful, you know? And, and then everybody, the reason why they don't do like a sample is everybody wants to make an escape. Nobody is like, this was awesome, you know? Like day one, people are like, why did I do this? Why did I do this? This is awful. This is horrible. Can't believe I've done this. This is terrible. How do I get out? How do I get out? But then you're like, I'm just give it one more day. And then like day three, people start to be like, um, and so that, but like something changes around like four or five, then there's usually one more day of like, get me out of here being, because we have these days where we have such a pattern towards escape. Um, they really say that it's the minimum amount of time to perform a deep operation of the mind. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, no internet, no phone calls, no reading, no writing, except the course materials that you're given, no distraction, no music, you know? No entertainment, no diversion, no distraction. You know? Everybody I talk to, the first couple of days, they hate the center. This is so, so ugly, this place. Horrible food. Horrible place. By the end, they're like, this place is amazing. I never want to leave. 
this was the best food I ever had in my whole life. And it was like, it's the same food, it's the same place, but what changed is you. It's very, it's very, very interesting. I've, I've sat a bunch of the courses. Like, and if, you, if something for you is you should sign up and just take the plunge in, um, especially because you've been sitting and it sounds like you're interested in working with that quality of mind. You know, it is good to have a bit of a sitting practice before you go, like five minutes, 10 minutes regularly, something like this, a bit of a sitting practice, um, particularly a little bit of anapana uh, so that it's not totally foreign. But if you don't have a sitting practice, they'll teach you right from the very, very beginning. It's just, it'll be a little, a little challenging. All right. See what time it is. All right. We have maybe five more minutes. Let me look in the chat and see if there was anything um, Anything there? Let's see. Thank you. There's a long something here. Oh, let's read this one. There's a long. There's a long question in here. I'll read it for everyone. And let's see. It's really helpful to sit together. I completely agree. Um, should I be sitting longer or shorter in my meditation to build a balance of mind or body? I, I really again recommend pick something that's sustainable for yourself and save the longer sits for when we do a group sitting. Even the five minutes starts to build the foundation, do something that you can be a success at, that you can commit to. Don't overcommit yourself. We always want to think about proportionality in our lives. There's those of us that are really high achievers, you know? We'll set a really high standard for ourselves. I think that definitely the Buddha is cool, you know? I'm gonna, I'm gonna become the Buddha. And they're like, okay, I'm gonna calm down, you know. And you're like, then, and then, then like next week you're gonna be the second coming of Christ, also. You know what I mean? It's like we need to relax. But we have that, like, that's the achiever within us. And we're like, we're achieving in life, and then we want to achieve in spirituality. And so we're like, I'm gonna sit for one hour in the morning and one hour in the evening, and then, and then like we do it for like two days, and then you're like, eh, and then you fail. And then the next week you need to change religion, try to do something else. This is too much. So proportionality is very important, that you're able to be open and honest and and marry the relationship between um, uh, um, capability, right? What are you capable of? And aspiration. And if those are not married, the proportionality between those two will become an obstacle for you on the path. If your aspiration is so far divorced from your capability, you'll feel like a constant failure every day. I would rather have you underestimate your capability, right? And underestimate your aspirations, underestimate them both a little bit. Your capability is actually here, kind of pretend to be here. Your aspiration is here, pretend to be here. Then you'll surprise yourself. Look, I want to sit for five minutes. I sat for 10, good on me. Wow, I want to sit tomorrow. It becomes a success place in your life rather than a failure place in your life. I personally feel like we have enough failures in our life. You know, we don't need to like make our spiritual practice another place where we fail, you know? One more question, Jordan? Um, you said that 5% around 5% is the conscious Correct. Yeah. So um, I'm new to meditation. Uh-huh. I'm new to meditation. I've never been trying to do five minutes. Five minutes, yeah. And I found like through meditation, the goal was to empty like the mind and like the thoughts. So through meditation, do we want to increase this five percent or make it solid or like decrease this five percent? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good question. There's two parts to the question. So do we want to make the mind free of thoughts? And do we want what do we do about the conscious and the subconscious mind? So those are two separate questions. So let's go into that uh, just for a moment. This is useful to think about. First, 
Um, so first, many people think that the goal of meditation is to um, remove all thoughts from the mind. Um, however, the, the goal of meditation is to, first of all, make you realize that you are not your thoughts, not your body, not your emotions. Right? So that we can shift the locus of identification of the mind away from thought, emotion, body into something which is beyond. So that we can have what's, what's often referred to as the sky-like nature of mind. The mind is the container or the beingness as the container of awareness, which is wide and vast enough that can hold all experiences. Which means that sometimes there might be clouds. Sometimes there might be sun, no clouds. Uh, so what we're looking for is equanimity rather than absolute thoughtlessness. Of course, the more equanimous we are, the more likely it is that we'll have periods without thoughts. But if we then think that we fail when thoughts are present, now we're creating an attachment to a particular state, which then means we're off the path. Understand? It's a little confusing, but it's uh, important to make the distinction. Meditation practice doesn't necessarily equal a calm mind, but an equanimous mind is more likely to be calm, but an equanimous mind is also able to keep its seat of equanimity even in the presence of many, many thoughts. Now, if we talk about the difference between the conscious and the subconscious mind, where do you think this subconscious mind exists? Where do you think? I think, where is the subconscious mind? Is it in the brain? Maybe. We only use a lot of, we don't use a lot of our brain's capacity. Where, but where, where could it be, this subconscious mind? What do you think? Any ideas? Where is the subconscious mind? Where did it go? Can you see it? Hmm? Outside the body? Outside the, so, okay, let's put up some options. Outside the body, right? Maybe being like held for you. Like in the spirit, so there's like a whole like level of this like spirit where all our subconscious lives. That's interesting. <laughs> like in Club Med up there, um, or um, it's in the portion of our brain that we don't use, we don't, don't access it. You know, any other ideas? Subtle body. What's that? All right. So the Anna, maybe the Pranamaya Kosha, right? So these are the co- the different koshas, the different layers. So maybe it's in the Pranamaya Kosha. Any other thoughts? Let me ask you some questions. Have you ever heard this expression? What are some expressions about if you know you want to do something, but you don't have the intellectual reason for why you want to do it? What do you say? I feel it in my gut, right? Mm -hmm. And how about um, when uh, someone that you really, really like doesn't like you? What does that do to you? What do you feel? It broke my heart, you know. It broke my heart, <laughs> Or, or you know, you can like die of heartache. I feel it in my gut. I just, I just know. Or, 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 or the way emotions are so bodily felt. So we have this idea actually that the subconscious mind lives in the body, and it lives in the tissues of the body, and in the cell memory of the body, and it expresses itself through our organ system through our, um, our, our, our neural fascial network, our, um, sure, the pranamaya kosha, absolutely, but, but very much that the subconscious mind, which is constantly feeling, reacting, feeling, reacting, feeling, reacting, not only lives in the body, but potentially is the body. And, and, and in contemporary um, uh, sort of um, biology research, they are finding that in the gut, for example, and in the muscle fibers of the body, 
there are the same neurotransmitter receptors that they previously thought only existed in the brain. So these would be that the molecules of emotion that they thought only flooded the brain and then produced a particular response actually exists within the body as well. So that, and, and there's actually more of them in the body, way more in the body than in the brain. And even more than that, there's contemporary cardiac research that shows that the, that the, that the neural pathways connecting the heart to the brain, that there are more connecting going from down to up than from up to down. So that actually the heart and its capacity for um, magnetic vibration has a stronger impact and influence on the brain than the brain has on the heart. Stronger, of course, the brain can be dominant, but in terms of the, how we're biologically wired, that there are, more, there are more pathways of influence that go from the heart upward rather than from the brain down. So when we think about you know, heart-brain coherence and things like that. So if you're interested in that connection, there's a book called um, Molecules of Emotion by Dr. Candace Pert that uh, describes some of the, the contemporary research on the, the um, neurotransmitters that are uh, um, evident within the uh, realm of the body, and the, and the muscles and then the, the um, organs of the digestion and various other systems of the body. So that's a very long-winded answer saying that um, to bring wholeness to consciousness, we must become, we, we don't need to shift conscious and subconscious, but we need to unite consciousness. And when we become more embodied, we bring consciousness into the subconscious mind. So that an experience of wholeness would be that um, we are entirely embodied. And in that state of total embodiment, then the, the distinction between conscious and subconscious mind starts to blur. So that, that we're intimate with the body. And it's not this hard division of conscious, subconscious. It's this sort of is, um, we can occupy the borderland between that and then perhaps shifts in our awareness points. So if there are times in your asana practice, in your meditation practice, or also in your life where you experience sort of a thinking presence in a state of wakefulness that lacks words but is not without thought and awareness, we may be crossing the bridge between the conscious and the subconscious mind, or we may be in fact occupying the subconscious mind. If we are in that state where we are thinking, but words are not present, and yet there's a knowingness that seems to fill our awareness, in those states, we can be said to be, you know, doing some quite deep work along the path. Make sense? Like quality of mind. Quality, yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. A quality of mind or a quality of beingness. Yeah, because I heard, I'm aware of that, like about the breathing, like the quality of breathing, the quality of your life. Mm. So maybe it's the same thing, the quality of your mind. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, the quality of being, a quality of being. Yeah, you could think about a being, a state of being, rather than a state of doing thinking, doing thinking. So when we shift to a state of being, that's a way to think about it. But the Buddha sometimes called the, the state of what is, or the isness of the moment. And that's kind of like a play on words, because we, we wouldn't say that in English, but the state of what is, the relative isness, right? the beingness. Of what is. And the more we're resting in that, then the more again we're moving away from that 5% into sort of a more expanded whole view of 
consciousness. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.